Well, hey church, I'm Ryan. I'm one of the apprentices here at Auckland EV. Uh, and as part of my apprenticeship, I've been looking after the purpose of magnification, which is the first of our five purposes that we're gonna be talking about. Uh, but I wanna start off by asking you a slightly odd question. Why do you get out of bed in the morning? What is it that gets you up each day? Now, some of the first things that probably come to mind are our jobs, right? We, we get out of bed each morning so we don't get fired. Well, with lockdown, things are a little bit different and there's a very real chance some people here currently don't get out of bed in the morning. Now, if you have kids, you probably get out of bed so your house doesn't burn down. Uh, for me, uh, I'm a bit of an American football fan. So from when the season kicks off uh, in August, I'm up at 5 a.m. on Monday mornings uh, to watch. I'm someone who's normally a little bit sluggish when the alarm goes off, but not when there's a game on. But what is it for you? If we're going to do anything meaningful in life, we need to have powerful motivations to keep us moving. And so today, we're going to see what we were created for, why God says we should get out of bed each day, the whole reason we exist. Now, we're currently in a series called Foundations, and we're looking at the foundations for us as individuals and as a church of who God has called us to be. So let's uh, have a look at the passage again and see what Jesus gives us as our prime foundation, our motivation for living. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 28. One of the scribes approached. When he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, which command is the most important of all? As this guy, he's seen Jesus, he's impressed by his teaching, and he comes up with a question. Now, if you were face to face with Jesus, the most influential, important person in history, God in the flesh, and you could ask one question, what would you ask? Well, the scribe, he asks, which command is the most important of all? Uh, I think that's a great question. You know, with the hundreds of laws in the Old Testament and all through society, there's different opinions on how we should live our lives. He asks, which command is most important? Now, however Jesus answers this, it's going to have a massive impact on our lives, on what our lives are for, what we get up for each day. So let's zoom right in and have a look at his answer. Starting again in verse 29, Jesus answered, The most important is, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is love your neighbor as yourself. There's no command greater than these. Now, Jesus isn't just making this up, right? Uh, this greatest commandment he talks about is actually given in the Old Testament, in the, the book of Deuteronomy. It was a commandment that the Jews he was talking to would have known well. It was actually part of their daily prayer, so they probably all had it memorized. But Jesus highlights it as the greatest commandment. So this is the thing Jesus says that should shape our lives, that should get us out of bed. It's, it's tempting to jump straight into it, right? What should we do? Okay, we've got to love the Lord with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. And that sounds pretty demanding. Maybe you even think, well, it sounds a bit arrogant. I mean, who can command everyone who's ever lived, love me with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength? If, if I said it, I'm guessing you probably wouldn't like me very much. But we need to pay attention to what it actually says. See, it's, it's easy to skip over the first part, but it's the basis for the whole command. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, as we read that, it might sound a bit clunky. It's, I don't know, I think it's kind of a weird description of God, right? We expect it to say, the Lord our God, the Lord is holy, or the Lord our God, the Lord is righteous, or powerful, or loving. But it says one, the Lord is one. Now, what it's pointing to is that the fact that God's not like anything or anyone else. There are no other gods. There's no one who's done what God has done. There's no one else worthy of being worshipped. 
when God said this to the people in Deuteronomy, he was reminding them through Moses of all the incredible things that they knew God had done. God alone was the creator. The first words in the Bible are, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the following few chapters describe God creating the world by the power of his word. He speaks and it happens. Let there be light and there was light. See, the incredible complexity of the human brain came from God speaking. Every beautiful landscape you've ever seen began in God's creativity. A few years ago, before we had Everly and and therefore had both free time and disposable income, uh, I decided to build myself a gaming computer. Now, I'd never done anything like that, but I spent hours researching all the parts, what would work, what components were compatible with others and which ones weren't. Which case should I buy that's going to fit everything and have the best airflow and the best cable management and all these things? Fine-tuning how much I should spend on each part. You know, if I spend more here and less here, do I get better performance for my budget? And then when it came to putting it together, I didn't really have much idea what I was doing, so I was really carefully following a tutorial on YouTube and checking each step as I went to make sure I wasn't breaking anything. The whole process of building a computer was, you know, it's pretty complex. But I couldn't even begin to describe to you how each of those components actually works. Thousands and thousands of hours of development and testing and manufacturing going in and you know, chips this size that have billions of transistors. It's almost incomprehensible to think about how that works, how tiny that is, how complex that is. And yet it doesn't scratch the surface of the complexity that God created just by speaking. See, he didn't have to do hours of research. Uh, he didn't use Google once. <laughs> he just spoke the planets into existence. Sometimes I think we take this for granted. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, you've, you've probably heard plenty of times that God created the world. And we can get familiar with that. We can lose sight of how awe-inspiring it is that God created. And if that was all God had ever done, he'd be worthy of being praised forever. But Israel didn't just know God as creator, he was also their deliverer. In the book of Exodus, Israel are being abused as slaves in Egypt. And God miraculously intervenes to lead them out. He parts the Red Sea so a whole nation can walk through the middle on dry ground. Now, left to their own devices, they wouldn't have pulled that off. Israel would have been completely hopeless. But God chose to show them grace. See, he kept his promises that he made and he saved them from Egypt. And that's the context for Israel hearing, Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. When God said, No one is like me, they knew that that was true. So have you realized that? Have you recognized how unlike anything else our God is? I mean, listen to how Jeremiah puts it in Jeremiah 10, starting verse 6. Lord, there is no one like you. You are great. Your name is great in power. Who should not fear you, king of the nations? It is what you deserve. For among all the wise people of the nations and among all their kingdoms, there's no one like you. They are both stupid and foolish, instructed by worthless idols made of wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. The work of a craftsman and of a goldsmith's hands is clothed in blue and purple. All the work of skilled artisans. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and eternal King. The earth quakes at his wrath and the nations cannot endure his rage. You see, Jeremiah saw that God alone was creator and savior and he worshiped him. Compared to God, Jeremiah could see that bowing down to these gold, silver, or wood statues was just stupid. It's pretty easy for us to sit here and look back judgmentally going, how could people bow down to statues? 
We think we're so much more enlightened than anyone who would do that, who would worship idols. But it's just one of the ways that sin is really deceitful. You see, we can see the foolishness in other people's sin, but our sin seems perfectly reasonable. We, we sit here in judgment of them while we're spending our weeks bound down to a number in a bank account. Now, we might not have statues, but how much do we center our lives around the letter grade next to our exams? Or maybe it's comfort, the next weekend or holiday, and it, it dictates almost all the decisions we make. In me time, it comes before anything else. Statues, as well as bank accounts, careers, even our families, all make for terrible gods. For me, this really came to a head when I was deciding whether or not to leave my old job and join the team here at EV full time. I had a job that you know, I'd worked hard for. I really enjoyed it. I was doing well in it. And I'd been there for a few years and it seemed like a secure job. I was happy to serve at church, but the idea of giving up my career was honestly terrifying. So I'd been chatting with Rowan and he'd suggested an apprenticeship as something I should think through. But my initial reaction was, was pretty strongly against it. And in fact, I actually said no, I think, at first. But as I worked through making that decision, it was really idols that were making me say no. You know, I valued job security and my career too highly. I knew that if I did an apprenticeship and it didn't work out, then I'd look foolish. And I was more concerned with how I looked than with bringing glory to God. Now, this is not to say that everyone should do an apprenticeship, right? That's not the point I'm trying to make. The point is that our reasons for doing an apprenticeship or for not doing an apprenticeship, for moving cities or staying in Auckland, for getting married or remaining single, the reason that drives our decision-making is bringing glory to God. So as you look at your own life, what drives you? What drives the decisions that you make? What better motivation than loving the God who made us and saves us? Or what could be a more fulfilling reason for getting up each day than bringing glory to God? It's quite literally what we were made for. So as you think through the decisions you're making now, have you considered how the options in front of you will either enable you or hold you back from glorifying God? Well, from what we've seen of God in the Old Testament, he's worthy of worship. But as we come to the New Testament, the picture actually gets even clearer. When Jesus came to earth, God took on flesh and he dwelt among his people. He showed, uh, he showed clearly for everyone at the cross how much he loves his people. Even while we were his enemies and there was nothing in us that deserved his love. Paul describes all of this when he wrote to the Colossian church. Chapter 1, starting in verse 15, it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by him, in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That's amazing just to think about for a second. I don't know if you picked up the parallels between Jesus and what we've just been talking about with God in the Old Testament. We see that everything was created by him. But as if that wasn't incredible enough, it says that by him all things hold together. You and I are still breathing today because Jesus sustains us. 
You can hear me right now. You know, sound waves are working the same way today as they did yesterday because Jesus is holding all things together. That's amazing to think about. If you're anything like me, you probably like to think of yourself as self-sufficient. You know, I, I work hard, I, I've earned what I've got, but we would have nothing if Jesus wasn't actively sustaining us each day. But even more, we see Jesus' work reconciling everything to God. See, when God brought Israel out of Egypt, it was an incredible display of his power. It freed his people from oppression. It eventually saw them into the promised land. And while it was you know, a loving act of deliverance, all of those people still died. They were freed from the oppression of Egypt. But as we see through the Old Testament unfolding, they were clearly still enslaved to their sin. As great as the promised land was, we see that Israelites are you know, failing to rule themselves well. If you were with us for our series in Judges, you probably remember that. You remember how badly Israel failed in the promised land. In the Exodus, God bringing Israel out of Egypt was clearly a great act of God's kindness, but it didn't solve humanity's ultimate issue. When Jesus came to earth, living, dying in our place, Colossians tells us that he solved our biggest problem. See, as Paul goes on in Colossians, he explains that we were hostile to God. We expressed that in our evil actions. It's always confronting when the Bible calls us evil, right? Evil is a word we prefer to reserve for really obviously awful people in history. You know, we think of Hitler, we think of Stalin or the guy who put pineapple on pizza the first time. Uh, you know, we reserve that for the really bad people. We think we're somewhere between average and good. You have to be really bad to be called evil. But God's word consistently holds out that to reject God, to live our own way, refusing to submit to him as ruler of our lives is evil. Through our rejection of God, we're at war with him. But what we just read in Colossians said that through Jesus' blood, shed on the cross, he made peace between us and God. This is the ultimate salvation we all need. It's not just an immediate issue like slavery to the Egyptians. It's not just physical healing or financial provision. Jesus' salvation is so much bigger. It's peace with God. Do you get the magnitude of that? See, I think we spend so much of our effort and our time on things that seem huge and important to us, but they all pale in comparison to our need for peace with God. This is the biggest issue that we each have to face, and God has provided the solution in Jesus. So we saw a glimpse of God's salvation in the Exodus, but we see it fully in Jesus. But what do we do with this? Right? If this is who God is, then how do we respond? And that's where the second half of the command that Jesus gave comes in. Right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So because of who God is, because he made you, because he saved you, because there's no one like him, love him. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, as we hear that, the temptation is to get super analytical with it, right? We, we try and break it down. What does each thing mean? In my heart, it must mean my emotions. My mind, that pretty obviously means my thoughts. I'm not really sure how you love with a soul, so we just kind of leave that one aside. But that's not really the point, right? The point is actually much more simple than that. It means all of everything. We're called to give 100% of every part of our lives to God. There's no place for us as Christians to be compartmentalizing as if you know, this part of my life is for God and this part is for myself. If we've seen who God is, that nothing compares to him, what else could we possibly want to live for? You know, do we really think that you know, career or Netflix or gaming or whatever other thing you want to put in there is more incredible than God? Of course, 
we don't consciously think that, but all we do is we lose sight of God's greatness. So are there areas of your life where, you know, you're missing out on living for God's glory? I think most of us probably feel the temptation to be Sunday Christians sometimes. You know, we, we come to church on Sunday, we sing and we talk about Jesus and that's great. But then at work or uni on Monday morning, we just want to blend in. God's glory goes on the back burner so that we won't look too weird. Now we need to keep reminding ourselves from God's word who he is so that as we see him more clearly, we'll also grow in love for him in all areas of our lives. Now, maybe you're someone who doesn't struggle with the Sunday Christian thing, but are there particular areas of your life that you're reserving for yourself? I know for me, I'm, you know, I want to live my life for God's glory. Uh, work looks a little bit different than for most people since I work for a church. It's pretty hard for me not to talk about God at work, but I still want to glorify Him in the way I work. I want to lead my family in a way that honors God. Uh, but finances have always been an area for me where I feel tempted to worry more about myself than about God. To be stingy and greedy rather than generous whether that's any generosity towards church to see kingdom work happening or just giving to people who are in need. I forget that the only right response to what Jesus has done for me is living wholeheartedly for him. Every area of life, even the areas that make me uncomfortable. So what is that area for you? What part of your life are you holding back for yourself, for your own comfort, your own glory, now, if you're someone listening today who hasn't really thought about Jesus much at all, or maybe you're not living for his glory because you're not convinced yet that he's worth it, uh, I'm really glad that you've chosen to listen in today and hear more about who Jesus is. As a church, we want to be living radically for his glory because we see how great he is, how much he's given us. And we'd love for you to see that as well. Because what I'm saying here today is, is not that if you love God well enough, then maybe he'll be pleased with you and he'll let you into heaven. Right? The Bible is clear that none of us can live a life that's pleasing to God. Uh, that's why Jesus had to die in our place, to reconcile us to God, to make peace. Is that what we we're just talking about? God isn't pleased with us because we love him enough, but because Jesus loved him perfectly. And if we trust in Jesus' work on our behalf, we're forgiven. And that perfect work is accredited to our account. See, we don't love God to avoid hell. We love God because he's shown us such incredible grace. So if you don't know Jesus, you're not trusting in Jesus, then I want to encourage you to come to his word and find out more of who he is. This short little story we've been looking at uh, today, it comes from the book of Mark. So why not take some time and read through the book of Mark? You could do that on your own or if someone invited you along today, reach out to them and read through Mark together. But come to the word and see more of who Jesus is. And why here at Auckland EV, we want to live radically for his glory. But for all of us, right, we have this tendency to forget God. We live for all kinds of selfish reasons. And that's why we need to remind ourselves and actually remind each other of how great God is. And that's really the heart of what we call magnification. One of the key purposes for us as a church is that we exist to put God's glory clearly on display for one another and for the world around us. So that we remember that no one is like our God and that we can persevere in living for him. In case you're wondering, though, when we as a church talk about magnifying God, it's not that we're taking something really small and we're trying to make it look big, you know, like a magnifying glass. That's one type of magnification. But there's another type, which is what a telescope does. It's taking something huge, but that we can't see well. 
from where we are. It helps us to see how huge and incredible it truly is. And that's what we're called to do with God. We're not trying to make him sound better than he is. We're not hyping him up. We're just helping people to see how glorious God really is. We're praising him because he deserves it and because we love him. Have you noticed in yourself that when you care about something, you kind of tend to talk about it more? Uh, maybe it's easier to see in other people. Uh, we all had that one friend who wouldn't stop talking about kombucha for like 18 months. I don't know what that was about, but we all had that friend. Uh, for me, if you get me started talking about American football, you'll probably be there a while. Uh, I mean, this is the second time I've put it in a sermon. So uh, I, I love American football. We're right in the middle of the season now. Uh, and also, just as a side note, there aren't enough people in New Zealand who are into it. So reach out if you're a fan. I need more people to talk to about football. Uh, but it's not hard for me to talk about it. Right? It's not a chore, a drag, something that I have to do. Now, it'd be pretty strange if after telling you all this and how much I love football, you tried to talk to me about it and I ignored you. you know, I was checking my phone, I tried to change the subject or do something else. You'd expect me to be excited to talk about it because we praise what we love. And so if we've seen who God is, if we love him with our heart, soul, mind and strength, praise ought to be our natural response to him. Look how the psalmist puts it in Psalm 150. Hallelujah. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty expanse. Praise him for his powerful acts. Praise him for his abundant greatness. Praise him with trumpet blast. Praise him with harp and lyre. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and flute. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Praise him with clashing cymbals. Let everything that breathes praise the Lord. Hallelujah. See, it's just overflowing. Right? Praise God. Praise Him for everything He's done. Praise Him with everything you can. There are a couple of questions that we need to ask ourselves here. Do I naturally praise God? In my conversations, am I praising God? You know, telling others who He is and what He's done, whether that's sharing the news of Jesus with someone who doesn't know Him, or whether that's encouraging other Christians and how great God is. Do I enjoy praising God when we're together as a church? when we're singing or when we're praying together, are you engaged? Are you expressing your gratefulness to God for what he's done? Are you singing in a way that encourages those around you, reminding them of God's greatness? Or are you someone who's just watching the clock, thinking about your plans for the rest of the day, you know, whatever else is going on, just going through the motions because it's what Christians do. See, when we're praising God together, whether that's singing, praying, or in our conversations, we actually get a taste of heaven where we'll spend eternity as God's people praising him together. It's a privilege that we have now in the middle of our busy lives to stop, to reflect on who God is and remind each other of that. We're magnifying God's greatness to encourage each other to persevere because God hasn't made us to be Christians on our own. Right? He's made us to be in a community together, a community that encourages each other. So when we sing together, are you conscious of the way you're engaging to be an encouragement to those around you, to express to those around you your love for God? I think that's one of the really difficult things at the moment in lockdown is that, you know, we can sit at home in our lounges and, and listen to sermons, but we can't engage with one another, can't you know, encourage each other in those same ways. So I'm looking forward to whenever we're able to gather again to sing together as a church, to be with a group of people who love God and who want to live for His glory. So I hope you can see from this why we see magnification as a foundation of our church. It's why we put effort into seeing our whole services work well together, pointing all of us to God's glory. 
We want to help people who've come in from all kinds of different weeks to be reminded of God's goodness, to be reminded of the gospel, and then sent back into their weeks to live for God's glory. That's why the musicians and the tech teams and the team who come in early to set everything up, give their time and effort so that as a church, we can set our eyes back on God in the midst of whatever else is going on. I just want to say here as well that this is why we pray together on Sundays. We get to bring our requests and our concerns before God, but we also get to remind ourselves of God's works. I know sometimes it might feel like the people praying are a bit rehearsed, you know, because they've written their prayers. They're not just praying spontaneously. And I know that we have people from all kinds of different church backgrounds. And so that might be normal for you. It might be kind of weird. But as each person prepares to lead us in prayer, they're actually working hard to do that in a way that's clear, that expresses our gratefulness to God together rather than just falling into repeating religious cliches and Christian jargon and just throwing out catchphrases, they're actually carefully considering the things that are weighing on our hearts and minds, as well as the promises of God that we need to be reminded of. And they're trying to pray in a way that helps us all to be following along and praying that same prayer together. So I'm really grateful that uh, they all put time into preparing rather than just winging it on Sunday morning, you know, so I can be reminded of why God is so worthy of worship. One of the most dominant themes throughout the Bible is God's glory. He saved us for his glory. And so we want to be a church that's on about seeing God glorified, worshipped for who he is. We don't want to be a church full of balanced Christians. I know that sounds weird. We think of balance as a good thing, but we don't want to be balanced. You know, 50% for God, 50% for me, or maybe it's a quarter for me, quarter for my family, quarter for my career and a quarter for God. You know, people who get some good morals on Sunday, but don't stand out too much. People who have their faith, but they aren't too weird. When we give everything we have for God's glory, we will look weird. Now, hopefully that's not because we have the social skills of a bag of rocks, uh, but because our priorities are different. Our decisions are going to look illogical to people who aren't living for God's glory. See, we want to be radically unbalanced, 100% for God. It's what he commands, but it's also the only reasonable way that we can possibly live when we've seen who he is. That's not to say we don't care about anything else. I still care about my family and I love them, but it's because God has shown me love and he calls me to put that same love on display in my family. I care about money because God has given me everything I have to be used for his glory. So it's not that we just stop caring about everything else, but we care about the things God cares about and how we can glorify him in everything we do. See, that's what we're each called to and what we want to celebrate and encourage as we gather together on Sundays or in connect groups, or just in our personal relationships. As we look at how great our God is, as we see how worthy of our praise he is, as we see how important this purpose of magnification is for us as a church, let's be a church that spurs each other on to live our lives radically for God's glory. Let's pray. God, we want to thank you today that you are incredible, that you have created, that you have saved us. Thank you for your son, that he would come and reconcile us to you, even though we were enemies. Please help us to grow more in awe of how incredible you are and all that you've done for us. And please help us to live our lives, loving you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not keeping parts of our lives back for ourselves and our own glory, but please, Lord, help us to live all of our lives for your glory. I pray for this in your son's name. Amen.
You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.